So if data literacy is essential for the sake of data-driven design, then there needs to be a coordinated effort to train educators to use that data effectively. Otherwise, they will be left without agency in a process that they're inherently involved in and that actually relies on them to happen in the first place. That's a significant risk. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. In today's episode, we are pulling out a topic from the 2022 Educause Horizon Report Data and Analytics Collection. The Horizon Report panelists were asked to identify key technologies and practices they believed would significantly impact the future of higher education data and analytics. The list was reduced to six key technologies and practices, data management and governance, unifying data sources, modern data architecture, data literacy training, DEI for data and analytics, assessing and improving institutional data and analytics capabilities. The evaluation was based on several questions, including support from key stakeholders, impact on strategic goals, potential support at the institution, spending for optimization, effect on the workforce, and need for upskilling and reskilling. We will focus on the topic of data literacy training. Gartner defines data literacy as the ability to read, write, and communicate data in context. For this episode, we are referring to data literacy in higher education. More specifically, the training and development around data literacy. Technology and innovation have made it easier to build systems that can be written to collect and share data in an easy to digest way. This provides stakeholders quicker accessibility to data to review the impact of their work. In higher education, the stakeholders can be identified as the institution, individual units, administration, faculty, students, or support staff, which includes instructional designers. Using learning management systems or independent testing software, faculty can analyze assessments, sometimes immediately, after an exam is submitted. The ability to measure question reliability creates a better look at the effectiveness of exams. This quick and easy data view can also lead to questions that dig deeper into the analytics and specific terms and numbers and assist with identifying areas of intervention need. These same questions may also be in front of instructional designers who support faculty with course development and assessment building. Like faculty, Instructional designers may have an invested interest in a more expansive view of data, including course and learning analytics, along with individual assessments. Course and learning analytics can include the alignment of learning objectives to content, assessments, and even access patterns within a course. With access to all this data and information, how does one go about learning to read, understand, and use it effectively? Should there be more training on data literacy for faculty and instructional designers? What could data literacy training and development look like? What impact might there be should more development be centered on data literacy? These questions are part of today's conversation as we dive into the effect of being data literate. Oh, and stay tuned as we move our conversation over to gamifying professional development. Let's have some fun while we learn. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Celia Kuchwaitiwa from ASU's Learning Experience with an Enterprise Technology. Joining me today are my colleagues from Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Jeanette Senecal. Aaron Kraft. 
All right. Thank you for humoring me with all of this data literacy and analytics. Can I just say I am extremely data illiterate. (laughs) And I knew that before I started research for this podcast, but I especially feel it since the research into this podcast. And that's what I like about this topic because it is something that isn't talked about a lot. I feel in the world of instructional design, um, as far as my experience goes anyway. Right. And I think if I understand what I was reading correctly, it seems like data-driven decision-making has been a big deal in business, which we I think we knew that already, and in the field of uh, healthcare. And it's now a growing presence in education. This is certainly a topic that demanded a tremendous amount of prep work and thinking, but I think we've, we've talked about this before. Some of our favorite topics end up being the ones that we know the least about, and we, we really have to consider what the, the evidence is, where it fits into our professional experience. And yeah, I have to go to the confessional with Aaron and say that I jokingly have always called myself a data moron and uh, really had to pay very close attention in this background material to think through the definitions, think through the trends, the implications, although innately, I think we use pieces and parts of this work everywhere. It may just not be something that we explicitly pay attention to or or define in our workflows. Right. I think for myself, I've always wanted to be a numbers person. You know, I've always been intrigued by those who could look at numbers and create a story out of it and, you know, understand everything that it's saying. I've had some training over the years just from my education background and uh, teaching background. I've you know, had to look at a lot of data over the years and make sense and do some uh, decision making based off of data, but I hadn't really used it or had complete formal training to be able to feel that I was any type of expert or could create anything completely meaningful to someone else. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, one of the insights that I took away from these quite diverse readings and reports was that really it's about trying to answer a question or solve a problem and understanding that 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 definition you provided around data literacy is being able to figure out what kind of information you need, how to gather it, how to interpret it, and how to apply it to solving the problem or answering the question. So it really is process as much as it is numbers and technology and, you know, systems, it's, it's a lot of it that making sense component. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just to clarify, like a basic definition, this is, this was my takeaway that uh, data literacy is essentially the ability to identify, interpret, and utilize data effectively to inform decisions. I mean, that's essentially what we're doing all this for is to inform uh, decision-making in various educational contexts. One of the readings that I'll, I'll definitely add on to our show notes, some authors, Risdale et al., they had a way to frame this sort of definition, but I think of it as a like a, a working way to think about what it means. And they refer to it as a complex set of basic skills, including statistical readiness, digital data collecting and processing, and deployment of data as evidence in narrative. And I thought that word narrative was very interesting, that they're using that meaning meaningfully to say that we're taking numbers, but we're translating it into a human language or a human usability context so that it makes sense for what it's trying to do. 
So, okay. So during my review of, of the resources, which I think we'll include in the uh, show notes, I believe we'll include them in the show notes. There are eight key frameworks for data literacy by Maybe and Zelinsky, which I found informative. So here we go. It's a, it's a bit of a list. Lay it on us. Awareness, understanding data and its role in society. Access, understanding how to identify, locate, and appropriately use data sets and databases. Engagement, evaluating, analyzing, organizing, and interpreting existing data for decision-making. Management, planning and managing data, including organization and analysis. Security protocols for data storage, sharing data, and data-driven documentation. Okay, we're on number six. Communication, synthesizing, visualizing, and representing data. Seven, ethical use, identifying diversified data sources, in particular data from human and social activity, considering the risks and issues implicit in the use of such data. And last, number eight, preservation, uh, being aware of long-term practices of storing and, uh, and using and reusing data. Oh my gosh, like between what <laughs> Jeanette's definition was and these eight key frameworks for literacy, this is a, an entire discipline within itself. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, you know, about the expectations on administrators, on educators, on instructional designers to have this set of competencies, the more that we see the datification of education take hold. Mm -hmm. Are we expected to take on this extra skill set in order to be viable? That's a great question. Just think through your experiences so far and how many of those have you touched on in your experience? Not much. I think the reality for working as an instructional designer and faculty development and things like that in our workflows, we have need for and touch on dashboards. And I use that as a very agnostic word because it can mean any number of, of different types of systems feeding information in or pushing information out. But if you're trying to manage a course development project, chances are you're using potentially some sort of dashboard to track processes or percentages of completion or number of student enrollments per section. There are so many different ways that those numerical components might come into play. But have we been using and interpreting, you know, again, statistics statistical analysis, outcomes, any of that evaluative information to address a larger problem, either administrative or instructional using that? No, I don't think so. I don't think we have gotten there yet. Definitely not me. Uh, in, not just at the uh, Edson College of Nursing where I'm at now, but in the various instructional design contexts that I've worked in, the closest I've come to something like this has been maybe an item analysis post-examination or mm -hmm looking at uh, assessment items and drawing correlations to learning objectives, making sure that there's alignment. So I'm, I'm in that case, I'm sort of taking the data uh, and making sense of it and finding where there's alignment and where there isn't. But I think what we're talking about is a whole other level, a deep dive into data analytics. I found a quote in the Horizon report that actually made me laugh out loud. And I think it kind of illustrates that. It basically said that the growth in turnkey or, or like vendor-based analytics solutions betrays the complexity of meaningful analytics work. If an institution could solve their problems by dragging a few fields into an interactive dashboard and running a script, we would all be done by now. In other words, we wouldn't even be engaging and talking about this work. The problems would be solved. There's a human element that might get missed the mm -hmm. more pervasive uh, learning analytics become 
within the de- uh, decision-making process in education? So I know when I was at the College of Nursing, I had multiple conversations with faculty, with administration about looking at and building out dashboards that can show item analysis or connection and alignment of objectives to content. But the further we would get into the conversation, the more we would realize how large that actually becomes. And so I think, you know, when you say this is a very deep topic, I think that's where we start to pull back and say, okay, wait, I really want to understand this, but it's so complex that I'm not sure the bandwidth is there or the, you know, complete understanding. Well, so that's where I'm coming from. When I was reading up on this, what struck me was that this data-driven decision-making is becoming uh, increasingly a fundamental process by which uh, administrators are attempting to bring about uh, a continuous improvement within the education system that they're uh, in charge of, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And at a more localized scale, instructors and coordinators may be expected to use data to create meaningful interventions to their content curriculum and assessment items. Um, But how do you get that literacy if you're halfway through your career arc? Right. Or, you know, are we expecting faculty to not only be a subject matter expert, cross your fingers that they know how to actually teach, which is a separate skill set, know how to teach through a digitally mediated environment. So teaching through an LMS, right? Another skill set. And now you have to know how to pull data, interpret it, and then adapt your curriculum according to, to the results. I feel like that's a lot of expectation. That's not the case most of the time, at least in my experience. But I'm wondering, and it's in the Horizon Report, is this going to be the case 10 years from now? So, yeah, you're talking about a problem here with like training, bandwidth, expectations. But also, I think that illustrates it really would need an interdisciplinary team approach in order to do any of those kind of solution building projects, because you would need somebody who has the data science expertise. You would Mm -hmm. need somebody who could get a handle on what it means to have a roll up of academic outcomes of whatever form, test outputs or you know, rubric scores or any combination. And then to what degree are you rolling things up? What does it mean? Are you doing that for retention? Are you doing that for average grade scores? And then tracking what happens to students after they graduate? Like, what is the point? And then what team do you build around that in order to achieve the answer to those questions or solve that problem? That is like, that's a very like wicked complex kind of scenario. And one of the readings kind of described that is making sure that when you think about how you could start with it is determining whether you're at a level of, I think they they refer to it as either, either complicated or complex. And one meaning you would have some known unknowns and the other one meaning you would have unknown unknowns. You wouldn't even know what unknowns you needed to find out before you started. I think that's part of the literacy aspect, though. I think being able to identify your goals and set the data goals before you begin your data pool, as it were, yeah. and then know how to pull that data, mm-hmm. you, that's part of being literate. Yeah. yeah, that's the piece that I've appreciated when talking to data teams to build out dashboards have been those initial questions where... We think we know what we want. And then they start asking, like, what exactly, what's the story you want this data to tell you? What are you looking for? And what what data do we even have to pull from? And then working from there. And it's things that we, because we're not data, completely data literate, 
we don't realize like there's way more to to it than what we think there is. We think there might be just, you know, throw some numbers there and can you do something with them? Can you, you know, move them around and show me something? But it it goes a lot deeper than that. It is very complex. It can be. Yeah. And I just I wonder if is the word concomitant? Is is that a word, Jeanette? It is a word. What does it mean to like happen simultaneously with something else? Together, like two processes might have to be enacted together at the same time. Ah, okay, good. That is the word I was wanting to use. So let me see if I can use it correctly here. I think that what you're seeing or what I sense is the inevitable conclusion that instructors will be required to combine data literacy with pedagogical content knowledge in order to justify the curriculum. Okay, that's the sh- that's the direction things are moving. It's hard; you can't swim upstream. It's we'll all have to eventually um, adapt to that new context. But what needs to happen is a concomitant focus on building human capacity around data use. Mm-hmm. So, if data literacy is essential for the sake of data driven design, then there needs to be a coordinated effort to train educators to use that data effectively, and not just educators, but the stakeholders in general. Otherwise, and here is my key argument is that they will be left without agency in a process that they're inherently involved in and that actually relies on them to happen in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's a significant risk. And do we take the data literacy training? as deep as we're looking or you were you brought up just assessment building and we do ask educators to build assessments and to analyze their assessments so that they're creating more effective questions so shouldn't there be some sort of at least basic data literacy training for them to understand how to create those and how to look at that and who's responsible for that right and then how, much, how deep is too deep? Like, how do we keep it just enough to where it's not completely overwhelming? You know, in some of the resources that we were reading for this, uh, they were suggesting that a college of education is responsible. Going into this, I would have thought the col- a college of mathematics would be responsible for offering courses on this. So, yeah, I, I don't think there's a clear idea necessarily who's responsible for educating the educators on a skill concerning data that they're going to likely need to have. Right. Well, and to split hairs on that agency slash responsibility piece, um, I was checking out an Educause review article that was focused on learning analytics from a systems perspective. And one of the things that they learned through their fact finding and asking questions around data literacy levels between administrators and faculty, where they learned that faculty were focused on the student development of mastery within their discipline. So these kinds of things we're talking about, are the assessments actually aligned? Are they getting to the level that they need to be to be competent providers in the field of healthcare. Whereas the administrators were interested in framing this data as how to assess instructors teaching practices and whether or not they needed some form of mediation. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a scary thought. You ask any faculty who says, okay, now big data is looking over my shoulder to decide whether or not I'm an effective instructor and I might have consequences as a professional because of it. You're going to immediately get some pushback and some concern. And it's completely understandable. So if we don't bridge those perspectives and those stage setting uh, requirements around making common goals, then it's going to be a failure because we're not trying to achieve the same thing anyway. There are many levels here at work simultaneously. So you have broad level administrators who are looking at what, what are the market demands, how well 
our, our programs performing? Should, do we need to build new programs to meet market demand? Do we need to cut ones that aren't that are underwhelming right now? And then you have maybe the next level of uh, coordinators who are supervising faculty who say, well, I need to see how well my faculty are performing, how well they're teaching their students. And then you have the faculty level, which is to me seems the most granular, like they're, they're sitting there, they're writing the test items. They know each of their students' names. They're seeing how their students are, are performing per exam and they're making those small adjustments. So there's a whole system at work. Well, and I mean, you know, we could we could lose an entire day talking about the institutional perspective on that, right? Their their questions, their lenses are much broader and have higher stakes to an extent. So we have always what do we think of as like our sphere of influence, right? In my sphere of influence, such as it is, I try to think about how could I learn more about what exists within my own institution and then find a way to bring those little pieces and parts that may or may not be applicable and approachable to the faculty doing the work of teaching. That's where I would start. Like what is out there? Who within my institution is creating dashboards that are human friendly? Where are we in terms of dividing things between evaluative learning analytics and predictive learning analytics? So we understand whether something's an an intervention or developing a future product that will um, be the next best greatest thing to help students be successful. And that's a good point. You know, you have two types of analytics. You have hindsight observation. So the moments pass, let's look back and see how successful it was, whether it's assessment, whether it's a program, whether it's meeting market demand. So, you know, you got the various levels. And then you have foresight observation, and you see that with the emergence of predictive analytics, like you were mentioning. Um, and uh, one example, we have courses here at ASU that use predictive analytics, and you can learn more about that in our summer 2019 bonus episode, Adaptive Learning in Higher Ed, Failure is Not an Option. Check it out. Nice. Love that callback. That's a good one. <laughs> so smooth. <laughs> Thinking back now, if we were to ask faculty to take on some training and even IDs, I mean, I'm coming from an ID perspective of I've had to, you know, support faculty and help them understand some of the data and the verbiage or the terms that are being used in their analytics reports. What support would we need, both faculty and instructional designers? Off the top of my head, I think achievement number one would be to unlock whether or not everybody within our population of interest, let's say one college, even understands this definition of data literacy and why it matters. What's the point? Mm -hmm. It would literally more or less just be a campaign around why do we pay attention and what can you do with this concept before ever getting to the point of any kind of teaching, training, workshops, or implementations? Like you'd have to establish a basic level of knowledge around the term and the overall goal before anything could happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think to piggyback off that, I, I would advocate that any type of faculty or professional development for data literacy start with an open dialogue that considers the voices of all the stakeholders and so you can move beyond just a uh, mere focus on performance management or surveillance interests. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think there, you run a risk here. You run a risk here that if you don't bring everybody in, there's going to be a redistribution of control away from teachers and students and the communities that are being served by them and those who work with them, like the instructional designers. And you, you risk having an education system that becomes increasingly under a technocratic control. Interesting. Yeah, I think we need to be, take a humanistic approach 
mm-hmm. when considering how to go about faculty and professional development in this area. I would agree. So maybe that looks something like that interdisciplinary work group approach that becomes more of an ongoing community that has representation from various voices, not just an administrator telling people to go solve a problem and use this set of tools to do it. Maybe that has to be part of the process. I completely agree. I think one of the first steps in even just getting a conversation going around it is to just identify who is already in there, who is already working with data and how can how can you collaborate with them to fill a need or fill in a space where you're wanting to learn more about what the assessments or what the outcomes are telling you or find just finding out what you can learn through data. Because that's the piece I found to be extremely helpful when I was working with data teams that I didn't realize existed right away. But once I knew of them, I was then able to connect people with them and say, hey, I know some people who do this. Let's connect and let's see if they can build something for you to help you find the information that you need or get the information that you need. Yeah, so it's moving from that incidental, accidental kind of connection to a intentional, structured way of implementing groups, communication, and and working Mm -hmm. together. No, I want to go Paolo Ferrari in here. I don't know if it's appropriate, (laughs) but you can't lose sight of the goal of education in the first place, which is to support social awareness and transformation. So if you reduce people to numbers, if you take away the control and limit it to a certain group of people who are several steps removed from the actual teaching process, I think it can be a real danger and it can lead to a, a disillusion of the education process eventually among uh, the people that you're trying to inspire and improve. I would agree. Whenever I start reading about these kinds of abstract, deep mm-hmm. topics, I'm always left in my head wondering, do they really believe that if no one measured it, did it even happen? <laughs> and like, I think of kids in an outdoor preschool classroom learning skills that are going to be foundational for their entire life. And there's no analytics attached whatsoever. <laughs> it happened, but there's no data other than the fact that they learned what they needed to do to progress on to the next phase of their life. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, the numbers only tell like half the story. And don't get me wrong, I, I'm not against this, but I think about my Spotify playlist. Okay. Once my playlist ends, it decides to go off on its own and guess what I want to listen to, right? Mm-hmm. Happens almost every day because I'm listening to music almost every day. And w- invariably, it'll get about six, seven songs in, you know, out, I should say, from my playlist before suddenly I'm listening to music I would never choose to listen to. And I don't want to listen to it. I don't like it. So the predictive <laughs> analytics really only took me so far. Sounds like my Netflix. Yeah. Yeah, Stop that. I don't know what you're talking about. Sounds like my Netflix feed. It's a good example, though. Well, thank you for being illiterate with me on data literacy. (laughs) I think I have new professional development goals, though. I want to stay economically viable. So much for staying surface level. Man, I learned more than I meant to. Dang it. (laughs) So let's go ahead and transition on and bring us back to the Hot Topics segment. Hot Topics. 
So now let's take some time away from data literacy and move over to strategies for learning while having fun. A recent blog post published by the Online Learning Consortium's OLC Insights, from, uh, written by Madeline R. Shelgren and Samantha Becker, centered on gamifying professional learning and more specifically, gamifying at conferences. Each of us have been to multiple conferences. We have you know, good experience here. What are your thoughts around gamifying the experience at conferences? So I'm going to be that grumpy person and uh, I'm going to say that I hate it. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm the hermit introvert and I try not to be grumpy about this. And I know a lot of people are into it, but mostly I'm going there to learn stuff and, you know, talk to vendors and network a little bit. And this is like, it's too much for me. It's one more, it's one more layer of engagement that's too much for me. And just to clarify, like a basic definition of gamification, we're talking about applying game-like elements to something that is not a game. Right. I, think, much. I, yeah. I think of like the mother-in-law, she, uh, she'll wear a, like, a, like a Fitbit type of device. Mm -hmm. It'll track her steps when she walks every day. And if she hits so many steps, she gets a reward. I think, I think she actually gets paid money if she gets like up to 10,000 steps in a month. That's the ultimate gaming reward right there, right? Is to right. get some cash for something. Yeah. So, you know, there's nothing fun about exercising, but you're you're creating sort of an intrinsic motivation or is it extrinsic? Well, it could be both. Could yeah. Be both, if you're talking yeah. about cash, you're, that's extrinsic, you know, you're trying to get a payout. <laughs> but it makes you want to run, right? I guess it's extrinsic. So you're creating an extrinsic motivation to do something that's not essentially a game. I think I read once that some clever people, they wanted to increase the recycling that was occurring at a certain recycle bin location. So what they did was create like almost like a skee-ball type of uh, interface where you, you could throw your, your aluminum can, you know, into an area. And if you hit a certain spot, you, you know, you could score and you try to get the high score. And, and apparently they, according to them, they saw a huge or at least a marked increase in recycling at that location. So it's a fun example. There yeah. is precedent and, and there is plenty of evidence to support gamification leading to the desired results that you're mm -hmm. seeking. As far as at a conference, I'm with Jeanette. I feel like I have a hard enough time just booking my plane ticket and, and the logistics of getting there to the hotel, making sure that my, my suit's ironed and, or whatever. It has to be lightweight and it has to be easy. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't want to have to do anything. Like you, you give me what, like the little passport I need. When I go to a, a booth, they say, Hey, let me stamp that for you. Oh, okay. Boom. You know what I'm saying? Like make it, mm -hmm. make it lightweight, quick, simple. And then, then we're talking. Which is funny because I'm anti-book. <laughs> like, <laughs> what would you stamp? So, <laughs> the hand? I, I'm much like you two, introverted. I tend to keep to myself. But there have been times where I've gone to conferences where I felt the need to make connections and get to know some people mostly because I wanted to be able to venture out, but I was probably more afraid to go out on my own, you know, completely. So I would try to get to know people. I will say that one of the first conferences I went to, I was very much my introverted self. And I happened to be there with someone else who was not introverted at all. And they were doing Goose Chase. And I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but it's an app 
that you can add a series of obstacle types of activities to, like whether it's, you know, take a picture with a Burger King crown on or, you know, take a picture of doing, I don't know, just some funny scene or, you know, or just go to this person and say hello and they'll give you, you know, something. Anyway, it ended up being one of the most fun experiences that I've had and Not to say that I'll play every game since then, because I haven't, but (laughs) that was very engaging and a lot of fun because we were in a space where there wasn't a lot to do outside of the conference area. It wasn't like a big city. It was a small town, not much to, you know, really go out and sightsee. So they found a way to to help, you know, build some of that engagement and networking because the activities you had to do ended up connecting you with other people in the group. So that was a lot of fun. I think you hit on something important there. Mm -hmm. It's situational. So the type of place that you're at, the type of people you're with, if you're traveling with a couple of other colleagues and you're going to similar sessions and, you know, there may be other things you want to do with your colleagues instead of participating in the optional fun activities or vice versa. If you have a larger group of people, maybe you do want to go to the the disco party and get your badge, you know. Mm -hmm. So I do think situational application there is it's definitely a component of whether or not people enjoy and engage in the somebody, gamified activities. Somebody looked around and said, this place is boring. We got to give them something to do. <laughs> right. I will not reveal the location. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing Midwest. <laughs> Here in the state of Arizona. It can, oh, be, no. it can be a challenge for our listeners to guess on Twitter where the location was. and You'll gamify them with a yeah. badge uh, if they get it right. Being that we all have similar experiences and, you know, with the introversion and not necessarily wanting to gamify or play the games that are at the conferences, do you see a possibility of including gamification in some way to professional learning experiences for faculty when you're doing faculty development? Do you think that that would bring in, you know, some engagement? Or I actually do. do it'll, it'll be the same. I actually do a lot because one of the examples that um, I noticed that was included in the OLC consortium report that you provided um, pertains to one of their upcoming conferences. And one of the things they did was they took a look at their predicted personality profiles or those situational reasons why people may or may not want to engage. And they attempted to kind of distill it into four or five or whatever different personality types. And people sometimes don't like to be put into boxes. But what I thought was meaningful about it was that they gave pathways that might more or less align to those factors, those features. So if you were more on the quiet, introverted, I just need solitude, they built a pathway of activities that might be more attractive to you. Mindfulness things and, you know, solo achievements that you could complete without having to go talk to people, Go going to the vendor hall early before there's a big crowd. And so I thought that attentiveness to the different levels of need and giving people different pathways to complete the gamification was really powerful. And I could definitely see doing that in a simplified manner, obviously, but really allowing for that customization of experience. That's a great practice. Right. I was at an all day PD yesterday and um, one of the activities that they had us do was play Uno. (laughs) It started out with just us, you know, playing a round of Uno and then they connected it back to what our topic was. But it was an interesting way to, you know, bring in a game, have us play it in a well-known game. I think there were only a couple people in there that were like, what's Uno? 
it got us talking because I think prior to that, our table was pretty quiet for the most part, unless you knew someone at the table. Uno kind of brought some of that conversation out. That's interesting. Yeah. When I was an English teacher, I would use Uno with the little kids. Essentially, I was teaching them how to count and to recall their colors, but I made it into a game. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I did. Uno made it into a game. I just <laughs> <laughs> I just dealt the cards out. But uh, yeah, so Uno is a great way. I, I, I think maybe if uh, they let me play Uno at these conferences, then I would be totally into that. All right. Well, there you have it, everyone. That's our take on gamifying. <laughs> we might like it. Mixed we results. Not also. <laughs> Leave me in my hermit shell. Leave me alone. Imagine that though, if everybody got like an Uno card, all the attendees, and then you had to go around and play one hand against each booth you attended or something. Mm -hmm. I bet that would absolutely increase engagement. Yeah. I think we're onto something here. Let's reach out to to the vendors of Uno and see what they have to say. All right. Well, as always, thank you to my amazing colleagues and podcast team, Jeanette and our dual-powered participant and producer, Aaron. If you'd like to read more from the 2022 Educause Horizon Report data and analytics collection, you can find the link in the show notes. Let's continue this conversation on Twitter. What are your thoughts on data literacy training and gamifying professional development? We love hearing from our listeners. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation.